You may recall when we were back in verse 4, and that's been a little while, of the book of Jude, I said there is a a clear difference between uh, Christians who fall into error and even teach and promote error and the apostates. Let me give an illustration of what I'm talking about there. You may have a, a person who is genuinely saved, but who would teach and believe that the Bible teaches that you can lose your salvation. And of course, there are a lot of Christians that believe that. It's interesting, they usually don't think they're the ones that are going to lose their salvation. It'll be somebody else. Because they'll have examples of somebody who's prayed and asked Jesus into their heart. And then after that, they have wandered or strayed away. And in fact, they may be a pastor. It may even be a theologian in a in a school like a Bible school or a seminary who will teach that. But that's quite different from an apostate. Jude deals with apostates here. An apostate is a false teacher, one who has known the truth about the Bible. They've known the truth that Jesus is, is declared to be truly the Son of God. They know that he left heaven and he was virgin born and he came to the earth and here for the express purpose of going to the cross and on that cross he bore the sin of the world. And he bore the punishment or the judgment that you and I deserve as well. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, never to die again. They know that. And yet they turn around and reject it. And they even become enemies of that. And often Satan will use them not just because they have fallen away. And that's what the word apostasy means. They've known the truth and they've turned away. And we're talking about cardinal truth here. And they've, they've turned away from that. But they even some of them become Satan's special instruments. And he uses them to invade the church of the redeemed. As so as to teach their heresy and to cause others to fall away or even to end up in hell thinking that they're saved. So I want you to see there's a difference between those who are Christians who fall into error, and to some extent we probably all do. We're on a journey of learning the Scriptures and so forth, and the reason we fall into error is because we misinterpret the Scriptures. That's why. But for the apostate, he knows the truth and deliberately turns away from it. Well, last Sunday, we saw how Jude also chose to use groupings of three. Just a one-page letter here. But he used a lot of groupings of three. For example, in verse 1, he describes those he's writing to as the called, the beloved in God the Father, and the kept. Those three, the called, the beloved of God the Father, and the kept. In verse 2, he expresses three blessings upon them, and that's mercy, peace, and love. In verses 5 through 7, you notice he used three examples. He talked about the judgment that came out that all of the first generation that came out of Egypt, that he delivered out of Egyptian bondage, that every one of them was laid low or they died in the wilderness, except, of course, for Joshua and Caleb. And then there were those certain angels. And whatever they did was so horrific. And we talked about Genesis 6 there when we were in that text. And it was so horrific that he says he placed these certain of the fallen angels in eternal bonds under darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then the third illustration, he rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, last week we looked at Jude's usage of another set of threes that he used to identify these apostate teachers in verse 8. He describes them as first, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and thirdly, reviling angelic majesties. Now last Sunday we also delved into verse 9. 
And I want to make a clarification or two about something I shared with you in my last message regarding verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that even the archangel Michael did not overstep his God-given position and pronounce against Satan a railing judgment. However, these false teachers took great pride in supposedly reviling angelic majesties. And today... You may as well, and I hear about Christians going around commanding Satan and his band of fallen angels called demons to do this or that. And last week I challenged you to consider where in the scriptures we're told we can do that. And I want to say a little bit about that more. Were we told that we can go around and command Satan, you be gone and you do this and that, for example. And uh, uh, I use, for example, Job. And uh, we saw there that what? God gave Satan permission to get at Job. It wouldn't matter what Job said to Satan. He had the permission to do what he was doing. And then we talked about Peter for a minute. And uh, Jesus had told Peter, he said that Satan had asked permission to sift him like wheat. And evidently, the Lord gave Satan permission to do that. But of course, the Lord said, I prayed for you, Peter, that after you've been restored, you know, you would be a, a strength to the other believers. And then there was Paul. And he says that he was given a thorn in the flesh. It was a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And you know, he prayed. He said three times, Lord, take this away. But he says, he didn't say Satan or demon. Be I be gone. You get out of here. Uh, he was allowed to do this. And so my point was this. We don't know what all God is doing with the fallen angels. We don't know. One thing we do know that God is absolutely sovereign and he is accomplishing his purpose, even allowing them to go to certain extremes, but no further. And so I just wanted to bring that back to you. We need to admit that we don't know just what God in his sovereignty is doing with Satan, the fallen angels, and the accomplishment over his overall plan. And Satan is still an instrument in God's hand to accomplish his will. Also, I directed your attention to when Jesus was led by the Spirit, So now he's under the control of the Holy Spirit. Remember that Jesus is absolutely perfect. There's no sin in him. And he's led out into the desert, out into the wilderness for one express purpose. What? To be tempted by the devil. And you know, why didn't Jesus, when the first temptation comes, say, Be gone, Satan. Because it wasn't in his the prerogative of the heavenly heavenly father for him to do that. It was not until the third temptation and those temptations at that point were complete then he had the authority to say be gone to satan and satan left him at least for a period of time the scriptures stayed i also want to add this although nowhere in scripture do we find we're told that we can issue commands to satan the demons especially since we don't know what god may be doing through them and allowing them to do we do see examples though in scripture of Believers casting out demons that are in people. In those cases, though, you're talking about people who've come that want deliverance, and probably they've heard the message and they want to respond to the message. And even missionaries today, and I think our son Sham, who works in Nepal, and they've had to deal with demonic people and to confront the demons in that case and to cast them out. That's a little bit different situation. So I, I just wanted to clarify that because those are a little bit uh, areas that we need to consider as well. Well, we now come to one more of Jude's set of threes in verse 11. Verse 11. But let's begin by reading the context. I'm going to read verses 8 through 13 at this time, and you can follow along where the text will be on the wall behind me here. Verse 8 of Jude. 
Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men, these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. There you have those three Triplets again there. These are the men who are hidden wreaths in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So as I said there in verse 11, you have his triplets again. He compares them to Cain, to Balaam, and to Korah. That brings us to our first major part of our outline, if you want to use it in the bulletin there. The false teachers follow in the footsteps of three wicked Old Testament men. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit led him to these three. There's some significance and importance here. So the false teachers follow in the footsteps of three wicked Old Testament men. First, they embrace the teaching, uh, I'm sorry, they embrace and teach the religion of Cain. They embrace and teach the religion of Cain. Observe how verse 11 begins and ends. It begins, woe to them. This is the strongest word in Greek to express great disaster. Uh, The word is actually an onomatopoeia. That's an interesting long mouthful. Onomatopoeia. It means the very sound of the word expresses its meaning. I'll give you a good illustration. If I go, wink, wink, you say it's a parrot. Very good. I want to make sure you're right. No, no, it's a pig. You know, it's, it expresses what it is. Okay. And uh, Jesus used, uh, that. Th- that's what the word woe is. It's ooey in the Greek, ooey. It expresses itself. Jesus used this word woe when he spoke of the soon coming judgment upon the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida as well as the coming judgment upon the scribes and the Pharisees. You might remember that from Matthew 23, for example. In the book of Revelation, where we are given the seven trumpet judgments during the tribulation, actually the great tribulation, because that begins it, we're given the seven trumpet judgments. When you come to the last three of those trumpet judgments, they are so horrific that they're called ooey, woe, judgment. But notice It starts with woe to them in verse 11. Notice how it ends. They have perished in the rebellion of Korah. That's how it ends. First the woe, and then they perished in the rebellion of Korah. Repeated, the Holy Spirit has emphasized God's intense attitude toward those who have known the truth and have deliberately fallen away from it. In verse 4, Jude tells us these false teachers were long beforehand long beforehand, marked out for this condemnation. He then gives three very graphic illustrations or examples of God's outpoured judgment upon those who have done just that. And now here in verse 11, he states their coming judgment as if it had already taken place. I said last week, you, you need to see the intensity, because it's a theme in Jude, of God's attitude toward those who have heard the truth and deliberately fallen away from it. 
When we get down to verse 13, he describes them as being wandering stars for which the black darkness has been reserved forever. You get down to the next two verses, 14 and 15, he talks about even the, uh, he calls him a prophet as a matter, Enoch, and his preaching, talking about the judgment that will come upon them as well. Well, that brings us to the next part, though. What was the way of Cain? He says there, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Well, he makes you think a little bit. What is and what was the way of Cain? First, what do we know about Cain? What do we know about Cain? Well, how about this? He was the very first person ever born. Did you ever think about that? Adam and Eve were not born. They were created by God. But Cain was the very first person ever born. It's interesting when you think about sin nature and where it goes. Wow. First person. Eve thought, I think, that he was God's fulfillment of his promise given in Genesis 3.15. I put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And they, ah, she says, the Redeemer's here. Cain, the Redeemer's here. Boy, how far she missed that one. And we know as well that he made an offering to God from the fruit of the ground in his effort to worship God. And God rejected his offering. You know, there are so many people today, masses of people. In fact, lots and lots of people in church, they're doing the same thing. Not even aware that God has rejected the offering that they're trying to bring up to him. And of course, you know, he rose up and murdered his brother Abel. Well, here's some specifics the Bible teaches us about Cain. Just going to go through a few. Here's, here's some of those specifics. Genesis 4, verses 5 through 7. Here's what it says. Genesis 4, verses 5 through 7. The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. I mean, who is God not to accept my offering to him and my way of worshiping him? Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? I, I was reading this thing. I said, that'd be interesting to have God show up in it. Well, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. Mary was reminding me of First Peter chapter 5. It says your adversary, the devil, crouches like that as well. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Well, then I go to First John 3, 11 and 12. Something more we learn about Cain. First John 3, 11, 12. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We sang choruses that talked about that this morning. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one. Well, we know we're, who is affecting him, Satan. And slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Ah, oh, getting right to the heart of it. What reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Let's move to another one. Hebrews 11, verse 4. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, oh, we're getting somewhere here. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Why? Because he came to God on the terms or basis that God told him to come to him on. A sacrifice, not the fruit of the ground, but rather a sacrifice. So by which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, Though he was dead, or is dead, he still speaks. And now for the last time in your Bible, Jude 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. So, what is the way of Cain? What is the way of Cain? From those scriptures we looked at about Cain, it seems clear that both Cain and Abel were told how they were to come and worship God. Because of their sin, they were told to bring an animal sacrifice. As Hebrews tells us, by 
faith. What's faith? Knowing God's word and obeying it. Knowing what God has said and obeying it. That's faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. It seems apparent that Cain rejected God's prescribed, prescribed way of coming to him and worshiping him and chose to substitute his own way. The way of Cain is man seeking to come to God on his own terms. I'm good enough. I compare myself with everybody else. I see the really exceedingly evil over here. I'm not in that camp. I may not be super good, but you know I'm doing the best I can. And I try to be decent, and therefore I'm coming to God based on that. By his attempt, reformation. Well, you know what? I know I need to improve, so I'll really work harder at it. Or, bottom line, his man-made religion. I've got the way I'm going to come to God, and that's just... I know how I view him and what he's got to be like, and therefore that's how I come to him. But the way of Cain includes something else, dear ones. It includes something else. Just as Cain rose up and slew his brother, murdered his brother, these false teachers are also murderers. They're murderers. They deliberately deceive people and get them to follow them and embrace their way of salvation, causing them ultimately to end up in hell. And may I say this, and you're probably very well of it, churches today are filled full of people, and that's exactly where they are. Whenever you decide that you will determine what I'm going to choose out of this and what I'm not going to choose, and you determine what God is like instead of taking what he has revealed himself to be like, that's the path you've gone down. And by the way, people like those churches because why? Because they don't have to deal with their sin at all. They don't have to deal with their sin at all. Well, secondly... They pursue the greed and promote the error of Balaam. Verse 11 there, they pursue the greed and promote the error of Balaam. He says, for pay they have rushed, (laughs) rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. My, I put down, and I think you can understand this one here. The money trail often exposes these false teachers. The money, you know, there's a real danger in making a lot of money in religion, isn't there? It can really ruin a person. And you see it on television. You've seen it on television as you follow some of these people and the the wealth and the opulence of their lifestyle and all. And you begin to listen to what is the message that they're giving out. You know, you give me more money, I can heal you, I can pray for you. You can be rich and healthy and wealthy as well. That message, that's not out of the scriptures, is it? Is it? Thank you. No, it's not. No, it's not. Peter described these false teachers in the Old Testament prophet Balaam with these words, forsaking the right way, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, Balaam's an interesting fellow. Evidently, his gift of prophecy was from the Lord. Numbers 22 tells us about the children of Israel being on the border of Moab. And Balak, the king of Moab, was very, very concerned. And by the way, rightly so. Because two other kings had gone up against them. And they deliberately attacked them. Because here comes this mass of people out there in the desert on their borderland. And so they go out and deliberately attack them. There was Sihon, the king of of the Amorites, as well as Og, king of Basham. So these two kings, they attacked the children of Israel, Moses and them. And uh, they purposely came against them and attacked them. And the children of Israel completely devastated them. Destroyed them completely and took over their livestock, their land, their cities. So Balaam, I'm sorry, Balak, king of Moab, was 
legitimately concerned about all this. So he sends messengers along with a very sizable fee to employ the prophet Balaam's services. He wanted him to come and curse Israel, knowing that whoever Balaam cursed became cursed by God. So Balaam, I think it's interesting that the unsaved world out there knew something about God's man here. So Balaam consults God about all this, and God tells him this. He says, no, this is God. He says, do not go with them. Well, that should be good enough, right? Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. I don't think Balaam intended at that point to go, but in his heart, he wanted to go. He wanted to go. Well, Balak, king of Moab, sent leaders and were more numerous and more distinguished than the former from the promise with the promise of richly honoring the prophet Balaam, if he would only come and curse the children of Israel. Obviously, God knew what was in Balaam's heart. And so he told him to go with the messengers of Moab, but only to speak the words he would tell him to speak. But, get this, God tells him to go, knowing it's what in his heart, but then the Bible further states these words, but God was angry because he was going. Oh, You mean it's possible that I might want to do something God does not want me to do and I know he doesn't want me to do it and so he allows me to go ahead and do it? And then you get this response. But God was not, but God was angry because he was going and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now I want to read this account. We're going to be over in Numbers 22 and I'm going to read verses 22 through 35. Here's what it says. But God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now, he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. By the way, have you ever ridden a horse or a donkey, and they did not go where you wanted them to go? I have. You know, and you're pulling on the reins like crazy, and they just... I Now I know why. There was an angel there, and I didn't see him. Well, Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and the wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. Now he's really ticked off and he strikes the, the, the donkey again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or to the left. That means if the donkey kept on, the donkey is going to die, or Balaam is one of the two. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. I could just imagine this guy. I, I think he had a little bit of a temper. I really do. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, I mean, what's with this guy? I mean... Mary goes out walking our dog, BJ. I can imagine, come out, guess what? BJ just talked with me. Can you imagine? He opens the mouth of the donkey and she says to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? I mean, this is bizarre stuff. Then Balaam says to the donkey, because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. Having a conversation with a donkey. I just Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed all the way to the ground. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey three, three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. Then the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would have surely killed you just now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. 
For I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leader of Balaam. It's amazing what it took to get this guy's attention. What does it take to get your attention or my attention? Think about that. So the next time your animal speaks to you, why not just let the Lord speak to you, you know, and, and respond there? Three different times then, as Balak, king of Moab, sought to get Balaam to curse Israel, you remember, he could only bless the children of Israel. Three different times. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. Interesting, he blames the Lord for that. You're not going to get any money because the Lord... It's not letting you get any money. But the prophet Balaam, but the prophet Balaam could not get the lust for greed for money out of his heart. Still couldn't get it out of his heart. Could there be some other way of gaining the richest king Balak was offering him? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. What was the error of Balaam? That's in your outline. What was the error of Balaam? Let me read Numbers 29, 1 through 9. 25, 1 through 9. Numbers 25, 1 through 9, if you want to put that in your notes. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their God. And the people ate and bowed down to their God. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. That's a God, by the way. And the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. I think some 30-some thousand people died due to that plague. But here's a question. Here's a question. How did this more immoral act come about? How did it come about? Numbers 31.16 answers that for us. Numbers 31.16. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord. In the matter of Peor, so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. He found another way, didn't he? Well, I can't curse them, but I'll tell you what, I can make them so God can't use them. He can't bless them. Here's what you do. I think that is the error of Balaam. Like these apostate fault teachers, he taught Israel to sin. As Michael Green writes, they were like Balaam, greedy for money. Like him, they practiced and led others into immorality. Like him, they boasted of prophetic dreams and visions. Like him, they encouraged apostasy. Like him, they would perish. Powerful, isn't it? It's interesting that here in Jude 11, we have the error of Balaam. In 2 Peter 2.15, we have the way of Balaam. And when you get to Revelation chapter 2.14, we have the doctrine of Balaam. The error, the way, then the doctrine. Now what happens? Starts out as an error, and then becomes a way of life. And then the next thing, it's a doctrine. It's taught. Amazing. Well, that brings us to the third of his triplet here. They perish in the rebellion of Korah. 
They perish in the rebellion of Korah. I want us to see Korah's two acts of rebellion. Two acts of rebellion. I'm going to read number 16 at this time. And in number 16, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Byram, the sons of Elib, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. Oh, here we go. They took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. Korah's two acts of rebellion. Korah's first act of rebellion was his inciting a rebellion against the leadership of Moses, wasn't it? That's first. He incited a rebellion against Moses' leadership. Verse 3, they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? That's first. By the way, it's interesting because Moses is in a bad situation. He would have loved to have been in the promised land in 16 or 17 days as well. But it just didn't go that way, did it? And so they were upset with him, frustrated. So that was his first act of rebellion. The apostate false teachers always attack any person to whom God has given spiritual authority. Right? Makes sense. You may remember wherever the Apostle Paul went and established a church, a brand new church, who came in right after him and who attacked him and undermined his apostolic authority or his doctrines, these false teachers. And that's what Jude's writing about as well. Well, Korah's second act of rebellion was his attempt to intrude into the office of the priest. He was going to go beyond what God had assigned to him. Look at verses 5 through 10 now of chapter 16 of Numbers. And he spoke to Korah, this is Moses, and all his company saying, Tomorrow morning... The Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourselves, Korah and all your company, and put fire on them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough. Moses pretty well ticked off here. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to him, to do service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near, Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking for the priesthood also? You want to take over Aaron's position now? That's what they wanted. And then comes God's swift judgment upon Korah. God's swift judgment upon Korah. It's interesting because Dathan and Byron were involved with that. And Moses says, I want you guys to come up. And they said, we ain't coming for no way. You can poke out people's eyes. We're not coming. Boy, that ticked Moses off. He talked to God and said, don't honor, don't accept their sacrifice when they come before you. And of course, God didn't. But look at verses 25 through 35. God's swift judgment upon Korah and his household and Dathan and Byram as well. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Byram with the elders of Israel following him. These guys are something else. 
And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them or you will be swept away in all their sin. They still weren't concerned. Dathan and Byram and, uh, and Korah and all these other, they weren't, they weren't concerned at all yet. Amazing how hard our hearts get. Talked about that when we come to the millennium and Christ being here and, and uh, a perfect environment. And yet at the end of that thousand year reign of Christ, Satan is released and they come up like the sands of the seashore to go up to try to overthrow the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And you know what? That's your and my heart as well. Beware of that. Verse 27. So they got back from around the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Byram. That was a good idea, by the way. And Dathan and Byram came out, stood at the doorway of their tents, along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. They're not concerned. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. It's not my idea to be here. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But... If the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs and they descend alive in the shield, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. I don't know if I would have even wanted to be there to see this. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their household and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry. They heard them crying and screaming as suddenly the earth opened up and they and their tents and everything, just children all, down it went. And all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Swift judgment. And he says, that's what these false pre- uh, prophets, these apostates are. They are like Cain, like Balaam, and like Korah in that rebellion. It's an interesting, a significant progression from Cain to Balaam to Korah. Cain began by starting his own religion, didn't he? Balaam began by taking that religion and making it an immoral religion. And then Korah comes along and makes it just out-and-out rebellion against God. Well, now we're given five metaphors that describe these false teachers and their destruction. We won't belabor these points, but they're important here. Five metaphors that describe these false teachers and their destruction. In verse 12, they're hidden reefs. Hidden reefs. When I read that, that, that metaphor reminded me of March 1984. You remember what happened then? It was Exxon Valdez. Yeah. And it ran aground on the Bly Reef in the Prince William Sound and spilled hundreds of thousands of crude oil into the sea and upon the land. And this is a far more devastating uh, destruction that takes place because of the false teachers in their midst here. Jude's emphasis here is upon the deadly danger of these false teachers in the midst of the redeemed. They've infiltrated their church even their love feast in the communion service. And the people aren't even aware of their presence, evidently, and the danger they bring. And notice, too, that the false teachers feast with them without fear, caring for themselves. You know what that means? It means I am there for what I can get out of this. I'm not here for anybody else, just whatever I can get out of it. And here's the deadly danger. Paul wrote to his disciple, Timothy, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus. That's First Timothy in your Bible. And he says, fight the good fight. Keep the faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and what? Suffered shipwreck. They've rejected the good conscience, the faith, 
and suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, men whom I've handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. He said, these are hidden reefs. Secondly, next metaphor, they are waterless clouds, verse 12. Waterless clouds. Now, clouds without water carried along by the winds, he says. You know, Palestine is a very arid place, very dry. And during the summertime, man, I tell you, all the little wadis, all the little streams, they dry up. And you have to dig deep to find water. And so when you're in a situation or a country like that and you're out there in that desert, man, you, you long for water. And of course, we know that because the children of Israel were out there for about 40 years, weren't they? God had to provide them water. Now, you in the Northwest know nothing about that. You've got more water than you need. Okay. But they understood that because there. And uh, uh, living in a very dry country makes you really long for clouds. And when you see them, you hope it's got rain in them and delivers that rain. But these false teachers made great boasts. We're here to teach you. We have connected with God, and yet they have nothing to offer. They don't bring any spiritual refreshment. They don't bring restoration. They don't bring growth that the folks long for. But their lives and their teaching or theology only brought clouds that delivered nothing but deception. That's the significance of that metaphor. The third metaphor is they are doubly dead autumn trees. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead uprooted. Now some think that the autumn means that's the season when they really should have a a bumper crop and that might be possible, but they have nothing of course. But it's also in autumn that the deciduous trees lose all their leaves and appear to be dead. I mean there's just a twig, that's it. Jude describes these apostates or false teachers as being doubly dead, being uprooted. Well, they are spiritually dead and as such, they will experience a second death when our Lord casts them into the lake of fire at the final judgment. As Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by the fruits. You will know them by the fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. That's how he described them. Fourth, very graphic here, they are wild waves of the sea. Verse 13, wild waves of the sea. He says, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Now, most of you know that Mary and I and the boys, we lived in Seaside, Oregon for 10 years. And, you know, we were what, about four or five blocks from the ocean. But when it stormy out there, you heard the roar even where we lived. I mean, tremendous roar when that wind is blowing up and the waves are, are, are uh, large, crashing and so forth. And there's times when they even give warnings that you need to get out of there for fear of, you know, a tsunami or whatever. That was, A couple times we had uh, those uh, concerns as well. But what's interesting is after a terrible, terrible storm, you go out there and you could see what exactly what he's talking about. I mean, filthy, dirty foam everywhere on the beach. And then all the junk as well that it cast up on there. And that's what he's describing here. In fact, he probably has in mind what uh, um, um, Isaiah mentioned about that. He describes a similar scene. He says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its water tosses up refuge and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That's the description. I think of Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Let me read that to you. Philippians 3, 18 through 19. Paul says, for many walk. I've read this so many times, I think about it. For many walk 
of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, listen to his description. They are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Well, that's the description you have of these people by Jude here in verse 13. And finally, number five, they are wandering stars. They are wandering stars. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. We would know this metaphor to mean shooting stars or a meteor. It's a meteor that enters our atmosphere and its bright light is seen for seconds and then it completely disappears. And Jude once again emphasizes their sudden destruction, doesn't he? For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It takes us back to verse 6. Go back to verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Very frightening. Reminds me of Jesus' words. And you know what? Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. He undoubtedly heard Jesus use these words several times because they're mentioned several times in the Gospels. But here's one of them. Jesus said, throw out the worthless slave into what? The outer darkness. Throw him out in the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When we come to the last part, you may not like how I word it, but it might help you in any way. Insightful stuff. Put information if you don't like the word stuff. Insightful stuff, but what am I to do with it? I mean, Jude spent a lot of his letter describing these apostates, these false teachers. In fact, he does so in verses 4 through 19, so that's most of the letter. So what are we to do with this information that Jude gave us? Well, in verse 3, he says this, doesn't he? He says that we are to contend earnestly for the once-for-all delivered faith. There it means you've got to know your Bible, folks. And by the way, I read that about uh, Balaam and Korah because I thought maybe some of you may not be familiar with those stories, those Old Testament stories. But you've got to know the Bible. You've got to read it. You've got to learn what the Bible says. You've got to know truth, and then you'll be able to say, this is from God, I want to defend it. That's first. And there's a lot of biblical error, by the way, that these days, and people are embracing and spousing error everywhere, especially biblical error. And so it really becomes important that we are in the Word and learning how to rightly divide the Word and then defending that. But secondly, what do we learn from Cain? What do we learn from Cain? I might ask this, are you like Cain? And churches are filled with people that are like Cain. They're coming to God with their own religion. If you sit down talking and say, they'll tell you, well, I think that God is a God of love. I think that, yeah, I've, I've been pretty good. I think that he has to, he will, he'll accept me. And God says, no, I don't accept anybody except those who come through my son. There's none righteous. Finish it. No, not one. That's God's declaration. And yet he sent a son that we might have his righteousness and have eternal life through him. But you have to come. So so many today, I mean, multitudes uh, see a very religious people in church after church after church think they're going to heaven and they're one heartbeat from hell because they have the religion of Cain. That's one thing we can learn. And by the way, well, I'll, I'll hold that for number three down here or four. What do we learn from Balaam? What do we learn from Balaam? In this culture, I have to preach on this a lot. In this culture today, there are multitudes who say they are Christians, but who are living immoral lives. It's acceptable. And therefore, the conclusion is it's acceptable in the church and it's acceptable with God. I mean, an unmarried man and woman cohabitating and feel no guilt before God. On Sundays, they go to church. They feel no guilt. They feel no wrong. 
By the way, this is just one of many sins. I understand that. That's not the only sin, but I'm talking about what we learned from Balaam here. And they continue throughout the week in their sexual relation. I just finished reading in the book of Hebrews. Heavy reading there. That last chapter, chapter 13 of Hebrews, where the writer says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. And then it goes on, For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Isn't it interesting? He ends the book with that. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Listen, I am glad. I want to say this. I need to say it. I'm so glad that God is so merciful and forgiving. And he says, listen, people come, obviously, before you get saved, what? You have a life of sin. No matter how moral you are, you still have a life of sin because of the sin nature. He says, I accept everybody. What a, a grace uh, that reaches the most defiled. Isn't that good? That's where I was. That's where you were. Thank God for that. And so I'm glad for that. He's ready and willing to receive such people in his, into his arms if they'll but repent of their sin and humbly come to him for forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. But many who name the name of Christ and who are living in this sin, they need to come. They need to realize that and it needs to be taught from the scriptures. Number four, what do you learn about the rebellion of Korah? What do you learn about the rebellion of Korah? Huh. I'll never forget Bill Yeager. He was the uh, pastor of First Baptist Church of Modesto, and he put on the Institute of Church Imperatives years and years ago. And uh, Jim, Pastor Jim's been there. I've been there. A number of other people that we know have been there. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, if you have an authority problem, you have the worst problem in the world. If you have an authority problem, he said, you have the worst problem in the world. Because you you are in rebellion against God who established all authority. You know, we may not like, we may not even agree with those God has placed in authority over us, but we had better be careful how we respond to them. Korah was sick and tired of Moses. And things weren't really going all that good for Moses anyway. They weren't getting into the promised land. And plus dry and needing water and food and tired of the man and so forth. You know, it's easy to get into a situation to respond in a way you should not respond. And every one of us is under some authority to some degree. And I might ask myself and you, how am I, how are you responding to the authority of what? The Word of God. I mean, do you read it? I hope so. Do you get in and say, God, well, wait a minute, there's some commands there. There's some exhortations there. There are some, there's some things you're saying to me. Well, what am I doing about it? Korah, of course had a rebellious problem. So do you yield, do I yield myself to those commands and exhortations that God makes clear He is addressing to you, or do we just have a tendency to quickly pass over them and do nothing whatsoever? You know, one other thing I want to close with, and that's this, I think often now, and I, I, I can't get my, my, my mind around it. Maybe that's of God. Maybe He doesn't want me to get my mind around it. But we have loved ones in our family that we know are one heartbeat from eternal damnation. We talk about the outer darkness. Listen, if life is difficult now and he calls this a vapor, what must it be light to go through that door of death, not ready to meet God, not secure because you put your faith in his son who died for you and bore your sin and your judgment and God has given you his life and his righteousness. And I think about that. You know, life seems to be going fairly good for them and they're not overly concerned. Maybe they're getting older but and they're getting closer to that mark, but you know, they just keep moving forward. I think, man, Lord, please help them understand. Please burden their heart. They're going to face a holy God. And just like he says about these apostates, he's going to say, I don't know you. I don't know you. And they thought they were going to get in. They thought they're going to go to heaven. He says, I don't know you. There's only one provision. I made it by giving my son. 
And so I want to be sure if you're here this morning that you have that opportunity. I want you to be sure to say, you know what? I acknowledge I am a sinner. I'm not defending myself. I am a sinner. I'm guilty before God. But he says he that's who he's looking for. That's who he saves. People who say I'm a sinner and I want Jesus to save me. I'm going to trust like Abel. I'm putting my faith in God and that religion, not Cain's. The provision of Jesus. And by the way, he'll save you in the seat where you are right now. You don't have to come forward. You don't even have to pray a prayer. But in your heart, you're saying, I want to be saved. I'm surrendering. I'm asking. I'm repenting of my sin. With his help, I'm turning to the Lord. We're going to sing a song at this time, so I'll ask the pianist to come. And I want to share with you the words. Because it's a song that talks about a journey. Talks about a journey. He says, here it is. Years I spend in vanity and pride. Carry not that my Lord was crucified. I mean, my, my pride, my vanity. I didn't care about Jesus. Knowing not that it was for me. He died at Calvary. But then his authoritative word came in. By God's word at last, my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law. That's the law of Moses. I'd spurn till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Here it comes. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy was there and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. That's good theology. That's how a person moves from sin in a lost estate to being forgiven and receiving eternal life. Just a few things before we have the benediction. Number one, if you're here and and perhaps you said, you know, I, I surrendered myself to Jesus today. I I realized I wasn't saved. I realized I had my religion and I wanted to come by God's way through his son. You need to tell somebody that. Tell somebody, say, you know, I asked Jesus to come in and save me. You need to. He says, don't be ashamed of him, but acknowledge him. And maybe you're here and you say, I need some more information on that. I, I know that's, that's a path I think I'm headed toward, but I just need more information. Listen, I would be more than glad to sit down and visit with you. So just let me know that. And I'll be glad to do that with you. Secondly is that uh, I believe there is a choir practice and he was crying out for tenors and, and altos, I think. So keep that in mind. We'd love to have you. And that'll be up at the office building just a block up that way upstairs. And maybe downstairs too. But anyway, that's right after we're through here. And finally this evening, I think you will really enjoy Dr. Mark Hitchcock. What is the world coming to? That's this evening. We welcome you back for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jude. What a man of God. What a letter. And Father, help us to learn from it. Help us to draw closer to you and really contend earnestly for the once for all ever delivered word of truth. In your name we pray. Amen.